Please turn in your Bibles to the epistle of 1 Peter. We'll be this morning in chapter 2 as we continue on in our regular exposition of this wonderful book. We return actually for the third time to this section of verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And I'd like to ask that you follow along as I read. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray once more. Let's pray. Father, already in this service of worship, we have heard about you. We have read about you. We have sung about you. We have prayed to you. Now, Lord, we come to the part of our worship where we are asking you to speak to us. Come by your word and open your mouth and company with your people. In this hour, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In addition to the individual identity each of us has, we all also have corporate identities or what might be called group identities. In fact, we all have many overlapping group identities. Uh, Most of us here, I assume, are Americans. They constitute a certain group. Some here are teachers or doctors. Some here are identified with certain universities or schools or even homeschool co-ops. Some here are identified with various races or ethnicities. Uh, Perhaps some here are members of AARP. Of course, these various group identities can and do overlap, and thus it's possible that there's someone here who is, at the same time, an American and a teacher and a Wake Forest alumnus, uh, and perhaps, uh, but not simultaneously, a doctor or a member of AARP, and so it goes. Uh, Now, at a merely descriptive level, uh, none of these corporate identities or these group identities can claim any sort of precedence over others. In some ways, it's a matter of personal preference or personal intuition about oneself. For example, some may actually prefer to think of themselves as doctors first and Americans second, or the reverse. Some may prefer to think of themselves as a weight grad first and an African-American or a European-American 
Second, but our corporate identity as Christians, as the church, as the people of God is transcendentally important, transcendentally significant. It outstrips and relativizes and reduces the significance of all other corporate identities. It alone for the Christian has identity-defining precedence. This is a truth hugely emphasized all throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and it is emphasized in the New Testament nowhere more strikingly than in the passage that is before us this morning. And this is what I sought to emphasize last week as we looked at these verses. Last week, we considered what this passage teaches us about Christian identity, particularly corporate Christian identity. Our identity as the people of God, as being part of the community of God, as part of the family of faith. The emphasis of that sermon was that in Christ, each individual Christian is given a new identity by an attachment to Jesus, but part of that new identity is introduction into the family of God, into the community of God, the corporate community of the Lord's people. And this is what Peter is talking to us about in this passage. Now, this morning what I'd like to do is to take that needle of identity, particularly our corporate identity as God's people, and thread it through the various descriptors Peter provides for who we are as the community of God's people. I want to weave that idea of identity as the the community of faith through these collective nouns that Peter identifies that describe and capture something of who we are as the church. So I'm going to divide these into basically two main headings or two groupings. Uh, So we have first, uh, the descriptors were given in verses four and five. We're going to look at what it means to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. And then we'll consider secondly, those phrases that are distinct but also overlap, in verses 9 and 10, particularly that we are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that's how we'll divide our consideration of the passage this morning. So let's look firstly at what it means to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, Uh, starting with that first one, a spiritual house. Now, Peter, as he's writing to his audience in 1 Peter, well, the entire epistle of 1 Peter, he's facing, I think, something of an uphill climb as he tries to enlarge and expand his readers' understanding of who they are. Remember, uh, they're Gentiles predominantly that Peter is writing to, that is to say they're not Jews, so they would not have been accustomed to the very thick sort of corporate imagery that pervades the Old Testament. So being thought of as a corporate body of God's people wouldn't come naturally to Gentiles. Furthermore, they're said to be Gentiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, there's no ethnic solidarity that's uniting these people. They're scattered all throughout Asia Minor and throughout the known world at that time, and therefore, probably among these Christians, there are various other group identities and ethnic barriers and maybe even languages to some degree that vie for identity-defining precedence. And Peter is trying to reduce the significance of those identities for defining ourselves and trying to enlarge and expand and promote this view that we are God's people, that we have a corporate identity. Furthermore, they're said to be exiles, elect exiles of the dispersion. They have no home in this world, which means 
for this new covenant community, for the family of God, this holy nation, this chosen race, there is no central city. There's no Zion like there was in the Old Testament. There's no temple. All the typical trappings that bring about a national and group identity are not here for these Christians. So Peter begins the uphill climb as he wants to acquaint them with who they really are, as he wants to enlarge and expand their awareness of this privileged corporate status that is theirs through Christ. So he starts by saying, you all, Christians, scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he could say this to us here today and every church, indeed, that gathers today, he says, you all are living stones that together make up a spiritual house. That's the first phrase we want to look at, what it means to be a spiritual house. What does this phrase, spiritual house, do for Peter? He says, you're a spiritual, the Greek word is oikos. Some of you may eat oikos yogurt. That's the word that's used here. Uh, Oikos is a house, a dwelling place. You could even say a family. And because of the surrounding words in the text itself, it goes on to talk about us being a priesthood and offering up sacrifices. Many commentators observe in the use of this word a reference to the temple. We're like a spiritual temple, a spiritual habitation and dwelling place for God. But appreciate that. It's not primarily a physical house, a physical temple. It is a spiritual house, Peter tells us. He is saying, don't think in terms of a physical building to be erected. Don't think in terms of a central temple location where where you're all to stream like they did under the old covenant to gather together and worship. No, you are a spiritual house. You're God's temple spiritually. That is one of the distinguishing features of new covenant Christian community, the worshiping community. It is a spiritual community, a spiritual house, and thus requires spiritual worship. At this point, Peter might have cited a theological conversation that took place about 35 years prior between Jesus and a sexually immoral Samaritan woman Uh, in John 4, the woman at the well. There, the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. There was a debate between Samaritans and Jews about where the true location was for the worship of God. The Samaritans believed it was on Mount Gerizim. The Jews believed it was, of course, in Jerusalem. And so Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. What is Jesus saying to this Samaritan woman? He's saying that In Him, Jesus, the Messiah, there is a great shift in the ages now. The worship of God will not be centrally located in Jerusalem or any particular sacred zone or space. The worship of God will be spiritual worship. And the Father is seeking those who would worship Him in spirit and truth. Indeed, God is spirit. And if we are to worship Him aright, our worship must be of a spiritual quality. It is a worship that is that is brought about and energized and initiated by the inner man, the inner woman, what is going on internally. We worship God in spirit and in truth. And so this 
is Peter's point, in a sense, in line with the Lord's argument in John 4. You Christians, you elect exiles, born again by the power of God's Spirit, you are each one a living stone. And together you constitute a spiritual house. Don't think in terms of a temple location somewhere. You are a spiritual house. And those who worship as the spiritual house must offer spiritual sacrifices, must worship God in spirit and truth. So together when you gather, you are making a spiritual house for God. The Greek philosopher and historian Plutarch uh, wrote a book about famous lives of people in the ancient world. And he wrote about the Spartan king Lycurgus, who lived, we think, in the 8th or 9th century B.C. And uh, he was the king of Sparta. And one of the famous things about Sparta we know from history is that it was a city with no walls. And so here is King Lycurgus, and he receives a visiting monarch who's going to come and tour the city with him. And this visiting monarch, he's walking around with King Lycurgus, and he notices that there are no walls. And he says, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? And Lycurgus says, pointing to his army, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. Now, Peter's imagery here is not like military imagery like that, right? But the illustration is still helpful. We as the church are the house of God. Every man, every woman, every believer born again by God's Spirit, a living stone. And when we gather as the people of God, we constitute that dwelling place, that habitation for God. We are a spiritual house. Now, I hope all of us are thankful for this beautiful building that we have. This is such an extraordinary gift of God. If you're visiting with us, or maybe you don't know this story, uh, we're only a three-year-old church plant. This building was given to us as a legacy gift from Northwest Baptist Church. And isn't this a lovely building? Isn't this just a great kindness from God? And, and shouldn't we as a church make advantageous use for ministry of the gifts that God has given to us? Shame on us if we don't do that. But brothers and sisters, know this. This building can be demolished tomorrow, and we would be no less the church. The church is not defined by a building. It's not defined by an address. The church is a gathering of the Lord's people who worship Him in spirit and truth. I know you know that, but we should be reminded of it every now and again. Now, let's consider what it means that we are a holy priesthood. That's the spiritual house. Okay, what does it mean that we are a holy priesthood? Now, this phrase is going to be used again in verse 9. There, there's a slight difference. Peter refers to them as a royal priesthood. I'm not going to spend, spend a lot of time distinguishing between those two phrases because Peter doesn't, and I don't think there's a huge thing for us to see there. I think being described as a holy priesthood would symbolize or emphasize you know, consecration to God. Being a royal priesthood emphasizes that we serve in service to the great king. I won't say anything more than that about those two phrases and any subtle difference that might be there. First Peter 2, believe it or not, is the only place in the New Testament that speaks of Christians as priests. Uh, so some here maybe grew up in Christian circles, and depending on the theological tradition you grew up in, you might be familiar with the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Well, that language comes from this verse, nowhere else. In fact, when the New Testament talks about the idea of priest, it's almost always attached to Jesus, most prominently in the book of Hebrews. Or we might talk about Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. But here is this one place where Peter is referring to the people of God as a priesthood. 
I thought about considering the phrase historically and theologically, uh, talking about Martin Luther and his development of the priesthood of the believer, but for the sake of time, we'll leave that for uh, another time. I want to simply consider the term exegetically, uh, that is to understand the meaning of the term in the text itself. So what is meant by the phrase holy priesthood? In what sense are we, brothers and sisters, a holy priesthood? Well, there's very meaningful Old Testament background to this phrase. Uh, So in the Old Testament, you had the Levitical priests descended from the line of Aaron who were part of the, the tribe of Levi. They were a special priestly class among the people of Israel. No one aspired to be a priest as a kid. Either you were part of that tribe or you were not. And if you were not from the tribe of Levi, uh, you were not eligible to be a priest. It was only those who were part of the tribe of Levi. In fact, throughout church history, only one priest has emerged from another tribe. He emerged from the tribe of Judah, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. A priest after the order of Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews tells us. But, but in the Old Testament, if you were to be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi, of the line of Aaron. And they were the ones, routinely, who performed uh, the, 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 the signal sacrifices and ceremonies for the people of God, the various oblations of the Old Testament. Now, you do have a very obscure reference uh, in a couple of places, two texts in particular, most prominently in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, a reference to all of Israel as a kingdom of priests. But now, if you read that passage carefully, it's not saying that the Israelites actually accomplished this vision of being a kingdom of priests. It was aspirational for them. They were to aspire to be a kingdom of priests, and we won't consider this today, but I do think we are living out that aspiration now as the people of God in the new covenant. But there's that Old Testament background there. So if we're to understand the meaning of the phrase as Peter, a Jew, uses this phrase here in 1 Peter 2 as it applies to the church today, I think the question we want to ask is what ideas were considered core to the priesthood under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, adjusting, of course, for redemptive historical shifts being now in the New Covenant. In other words, as we look at what the priest did under the Old Covenant, we understand we don't offer up bulls and goats now in the way they did. So we have to make some shifts, but I want us to consider what was core to the task, the role, the identity of the priesthood under the Old Testament. And there's three ideas, I think, that emerge prominently when we think of the place of the priests in the Old Testament. First of all, very prominently, is the idea of worship. The idea of worship, from the offering of sacrifices to their prayers, to the various ways in which they consecrated themselves for spiritual devotion, the priests were responsible to lead Israel in the worship of Yahweh. Worship was at the core of what the priests were called to do in Israel. They were the foremost representatives of Israel's corporate resolution to follow and serve the Lord and keep covenant with Him. And as such, they had special access to God that not every Israelite enjoyed. That's that idea of the the priest alone being the one who could enter into the holiest places. That's the significance of the curtain being torn in two at the death of Jesus and the cry, it is finished. They alone had that sort of special, uh, sanctified access to God. They were the orchestrators of Israel's worship. They were the ones who offered sacrifices acceptable to God. A second idea that was core to the identity of the priesthood is this idea of consecration, priestly consecration from their clothing 
to how they conducted various sacrificial ceremonies, to laws about ritual cleansings and certain washings the priests were to do to prepare for the offering of sacrifices. Everything about the priest breathed of holy consecration. This man was being set aside, consecrated for a holy task in service to God. That's the second idea. Worship, consecration, a third idea, very core to the identity of the priesthood in the Old Testament is the idea of mediation. Mediation. The priest was the one who came between God and the people. They, in a sense, mediated God's grace to the people. They represented man to God and God to man. They offered prayers on behalf of the whole nation. Mediation was at the heart of priestly work. They were the ones who represented God's grace and forgiveness to the people. They, in a special way, bore witness to these things as mediators between God and man. Worship, consecration, mediation were at the heart of the priesthood in the Old Testament. So these are some of the ideas behind these two terms, a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. What relevance then do they have for us as the church? Because what Peter is saying wonderfully, gloriously, is this is us. Brothers and sisters, we are the spiritual house. We are now regarded as the holy priesthood. You, brother and sister, are a member of the priesthood under the old covenant. Well, what does that entail upon us? What implications or applications does that have for our lives? I'd like to draw three applications for us. So here's the significance of our identity for our conduct, our behavior, our lives. First of all, these images, spiritual house, holy priesthood, have implications for our worship. They have implications for our worship. As a priesthood, all of God's people have free and open access to God. That's just one of the greatest blessings of the new covenant. And this was a big deal to Martin Luther when he developed the idea of the priesthood of the believer. It's not what a lot of confused Baptists think it is, that we're all supposed to have our own interpretation of the Bible, and it's anti-authoritarian, and, you know, I have my interpretation, you have your interpretation, and, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. That was never Luther's intent or idea. Martin Luther lived in a context where if you wanted to go to God and access God, that process was encumbered by a very complex sacramental system, and you had to go to God through a human priest. And he says, no, I call foul, we the people of God are the priesthood, and so I will not access God through any man, thank you very much, I will access God only through the high priest Jesus Christ. But as a, a priest, as part of the priesthood under the new covenant, I have direct and free and open access to God. That is the birthright of every believer in this room. We don't worship God by proxy. We don't access Him through the pastor or the priest. We have been given complete and total access to God through the mediation of Christ. And therefore, our text calls for this in verse 5, that we, the priesthood, all of us here who are the Lord's people, are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, the priesthood, offer these sacrifices to God. This is what priests do. They worship God. They offer sacrifices of worship. And so we, in our capacity as a priesthood, a group of priests, come to God with unfettered access to offer our sacrifices to Him in worship. Now, it's worth asking, does this passage envision us as individual priests and what we might do at home in our personal devotions, or is it much more oriented toward 
our corporate worship. Well, I don't see a reason in the text why we must limit it only to what we do in corporate worship, but I do think that's the overwhelming emphasis. So I don't think we should think primarily, when I go home, I'm a priest, though to some degree that's true. Peter's point is when we come together, we're the priesthood. Uh, We're a group here, together coming to God and accessing Him. There's an overwhelming emphasis, I think, on corporate worship and coming together as God's people. And Peter is envisioning a gathering, the living stones coming together and together forming a spiritual house. As I said last week, no believer on their own constitutes the spiritual house, right? Without the other stones making up the spiritual house, you're just a rock. But together, with Christ as the cornerstone, we become the spiritual house. There seems to be a sense of community and gathering. So one of the implications would mean that our corporate worship gatherings, what we're doing today, should emphasize that all of us, that we together as a corporate body, as a priesthood, collectively are coming to God. That should be the flavor of these worship services. That should be the the overwhelming sense we have ourselves. We as a body, as a priesthood, together are coming to God. Like I said, we don't worship God by proxy. It's not the four or five or six people on the stage who are doing the worshiping and we just sort of observe them. It is the community of priests, all of us, with free and open access to God, coming to Him as a people to offer our spiritual sacrifices. Worship is not performance. Worship is a full contact sport. We are the priesthood, which means there's no one above us doing the worshiping, offering the sacrifices. We are the ones called to worship God. And you might think to yourself by way of illustration of what these priests in the Old Covenant brought to the worship of God and and, and brought to the certain sacrifices they were called to offer. You can imagine these priests donning the clothing and coming into the temple. What expectation they felt. What a sense of privilege. What a sense of the awesome task that was before them. I don't see any reason, friends, under the new covenant why our notions of worship should be any less consecrated than theirs. We, the priesthood, are coming to God in a sense, in a new covenant way, to do that very thing those priests of old did, to worship God and to offer sacrifices of worship to Him. Let me just tease this out a little further. I know I've spent a lot of time on this one point of worship, but I think it's important for us and central to the idea of this passage. Brothers and sisters, this is why congregational singing is so important, Uh, why we have resisted uh, a more performative style of singing and music on Sunday mornings. Because what the Scriptures emphasize is that we, the congregation, we, the priesthood, are coming to God. We, together, as the priesthood, are offering up our spiritual sacrifices. And singing, congregational singing, is a form of sacrifice. It is what the writer to the Hebrews calls the fruit of lips. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. I think this text rules out the idea that we might think, some of us might think, well, I just have a song in my heart. I'm going to listen to the people around me, and I'm going to sing in my heart. No, Jesus, through His blood, secures the fruit of lips. He wants to see our lips moving and our our vocal cords being exercised as a offering of sacrifice 
and worship acceptable in God's sight. If I could take a moment of pastoral privilege, and some of you, if you've been here for any length of time, you know what I'm about to say. I say this once or twice a year. Um, It is God's calling on each one of us as the Lord's people to sing to Him. There is no footnote for those of us who don't enjoy singing. Uh, There is no exception clause for those of us like myself who are exceptionally bad at singing. Um, but, But God calls each one of us to sing to Him. It is a command that He gives. It's a privilege that is ours. It is a right that is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'll just say this, no offense. I know we got mass and everything, and it's a drag, but our singing, I've observed, is a little lacking lately. Let us recommit ourselves to this glorious privilege and work that is ours as the priesthood of the believers to come to God and offer the sacrifice, the fruit of lips to the Lord, acceptable offerings of worship to Him that bring honor to His name. Further, this is one of the reasons why we call it corporate prayer. Talked about singing, we talk about corporate prayer as well. It's one of the reasons why Uh, We all corporately say the amen after the prayer. And again, point of pastoral privilege, pastoral exhortation, our amens have kind of been a little wimpy lately. Let's get back in the habit of after the man of God stands up and prays or brother or sister stands up and prays, and he says, in Jesus' name we pray, let us loudly and vocally say to God, this is us praying to you. We say to you, God, that what that man expressed expresses what is going on in our hearts as well. We together offer these petitions to you. Amen. We together are coming to God as His people in prayer. And the way we signal that is through that wonderful word, let it be so. Lord, this is what is true. This expresses the burdens of my heart as well as the man or the woman who has been the mouthpiece for us. It's one of the reasons why we emphasize corporate readings and recitations. Uh, We together are coming to God and considering His Word and reciting and stating the truth and confessing the faith together. All of this is designed, brothers and sisters, to create this sense that we together, the priesthood, are coming to God and offering our sacrifices. A second implication under the spiritual house and the holy priesthood, this means God's people should be marked by holiness and consecration of life. I'll just be much briefer here. Of course, under the Old Testament, there was a significant gap between the Levitical priests and the ordinary Jews. And the Levitical priests had to undergo all kinds of ritual cleansing, ceremonies, and special forms of consecration that no ordinary Jew had to go through. And given the arrangement that God had called this special priestly class to do the priestly work, it's understandable that there would be some distinction. That, that that special priestly class would undergo certain rituals of consecration that not every Jew was called to perform. But now, brothers and sisters, among the people of God, among the corporate priesthood, this side of the cross, there can be no two-tiered approach to spiritual consecration and devotion. It's not like, well, uh, the pastors, they're kind of like our priests, and man, they need to be really holy, and it's a good thing they're really holy because they represent the church, and, and, and I should expect that I'm not even, you know, where they are. I'm not even in their class or something like that. That's not an idea that's supportable by the Bible. Uh, that's nowhere found in the Scriptures. All of us as priests are to consecrate ourselves by holiness of life 
by worship of God, by a commitment to Him in faith. We are all priests, and we must all pursue the greatest degree of consecration and devotion and holiness in the service of God. Peter, in a major way, over the next couple of chapters, is going to thread this needle more narrowly into our conduct. This is the big deal to Peter, that we as the priesthood conduct ourselves in a holy way, a consecrated way in service to God. Third and final implication before moving to that second heading under the spiritual house and the holy priesthood. These images have implications for our witness, our worship, our holiness, our witness. The priesthood was to bear witness to the glory, majesty, and grace of God. And though it's not prominent in our text, I do think we can say there is an aspect of mediation in our priestly office. We are mediators in a sense. There is a sense in which we mediate the grace of God to one another and to outsiders in our priestly function. We do this by praying for one another. It's a mediatorial role. We do this by praying for outsiders. We do this by conveying the truth and the gospel and the grace of God to one another and to those who are lost. It's a form of mediation, a function of priesthood. We are called, each of us, and as a church body, to represent and manifest the grace of God to the church and to the world in our function as a priesthood. All right, I want to move now from considering the spiritual house and the holy priesthood to consider now that second grouping of collective nouns, descriptors. We find them in verse 9. We're said to be a chosen race. I'm going to pass over royal priesthood because we just talked about the priesthood. A chosen race, a holy nation, you see that there in verse 9, and a people for his own possession. So we'll consider each of those three. Uh, They overlap considerably, but there are some nuances between the three of them. First of all, we're said to be a chosen race. The Greek word is a genus, a klekton, an elect genus. You know that word, you kids who are studying science, you might study the genus of a particular plant or something like that. It's a species of something. We are said to be a genus, a klekton, an elect genus, a chosen race, an elect kind or species or people. You are, Peter says, you Christians scattered throughout the world, you are a chosen race. Now, that may sound just too overtly racial for some. We find that an uncomfortable expression, a chosen race, an elect genus, a chosen species. Peter can't really mean that, right? Like, please, Pastor Alex, tell us there's some subtlety in the Greek that says it doesn't really mean a chosen race or chosen genus. But the truth is, this word genus is almost always overtly ethnic in its meaning. It is the same word Paul uses in Philippians 3, verse 5, to describe his pride in his ethnic heritage. Philippians 3, verse 5, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the genus of Israel, tribe of, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This is the word Peter uses here, and its connotations are almost always straightforwardly ethnic and racial. Peter says, you Christians, you're a genus eclecton, an elect, a chosen race, a chosen ethnicity. But what could Peter possibly mean by that? I mean, could he really be saying that? We don't really feel comfortable with either of those words, actually. 
an elect race? Like we're in double jeopardy with this phrase that Peter is using. Well, I can tell you that trying to somehow blunt the meaning of these words is not an option that will work. But let's labor to understand what Peter is saying here. You remember the first time the subject of election came up in 1 Peter? It actually came up in the very first verse. Uh, There, Peter referred to his audience, those to whom he was writing, as those who are elect exiles. And there in that particular verse, he then goes immediately to establish the diversity of his intended readers. Elect exiles, he says, verse 1, of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, from all kinds of people, all kinds of groups, people that had all kinds of corporate identities, you are elect exiles of the dispersion. But now we learn that for all their diversity, God sees them together as constituting a new and separate genus, a new and separate race altogether, a chosen and elect people, species, kind, genus. Understandably, in our current cultural context, this language could make us a little uncomfortable, but this is where we need to have our cultural thinking corrected. We tend to speak of different races of people, But that really is profoundly shallow and superficial, to think in terms of multiple races. And increasingly, historians and sociologists are recognizing this, that race as we think about it is really just a social construct. It's not a particular way of thinking that would have been identified a thousand years ago. It's a relatively new idea historically. And we who have a biblical perspective, like who know the Bible and what God teaches about the world, we have no reason to disagree. The Bible does not advocate the idea of the present-day social construct of race. The Bible acknowledges certainly different ethnicities, certainly true, geopolitical groups, different languages, tribes, all that kind of stuff. But the Bible is unequivocal that there is only one human race. It is Adam's race, born in sin. And all the various ethnicities are part of that one race. There is only one race. Or is there? It's true that for all of human history, up to the coming of Christ, there was but one race, the race of Adam. But now Peter makes the stunning claim that in Christ... God is making a whole new race, a whole new people, a genus eclecton, a chosen race of people for his own possession, which means, brothers and sisters, there are two races, Adam's lost and fallen race and the new race, the new humanity that God is making in Christ, namely the church. The church is said again and again throughout the New Testament to be a new humanity, a new people, a chosen race. You might think of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15. There he says that through the blood of Jesus Christ, God is making one new humanity. There is a new chosen elect people that God is bringing about, made up of new creatures by the grace of God who together constitute a chosen race. It is a highly controversial statement Peter is making, and it would have been no less controversial in his day than it is in ours, but it is nonetheless a true statement 
And brothers and sisters, gloriously so. We are, think about this, we are a chosen race. That is not a skin-deep claim. It's not a shallow concept at all. Well, now we have a different cultural background or heritage. You're a whole new species, a whole new genus. God is making a whole new man in the church, a chosen race, which means inclusion among the people of God is so much more than casual attachment to a club or something. To be born again by God's Spirit, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, is to be a new creature, something yet unheard of, something altogether new. And yes, it's a controversial statement, but it's a true statement, and it should fill us who are the people of God, the chosen race, with this extraordinary sense of wonder and thankfulness to God, with a dignified sense of nobility as God's people, not spiritual pride, but a sense of sanctified nobility. God in the church is making a new man. He has made us to be part of that chosen race, and it should overwhelm us with a sense of privilege and wonder and gratitude to God for this new thing that He is doing in the church. All right, that's the chosen race. Secondly, more briefly, let's consider this connected idea that we are a holy nation. We're a chosen race, a holy nation, passing over royal priesthood. A holy nation. Now, we shouldn't think that word nation here is equivalent to our modern notions of what it means to be a nation, like a nation state or a geonational political entity or something like that. The Greek word that's used is the word ethnos, which produces the English word ethnicity, ethnos, ethnicity. It says we are a holy ethnos, a holy ethnicity, a holy people, a holy nation. And again, I'll remind you of the point that was made last week and in the introduction of this sermon. I said that all of our other group identities diminish in the face of this new group identity. So to be even more narrow now and just to pull out one group identity, that of ethnicity, and there's several represented in this room today and among our church membership, Peter is saying the most important thing about you, the identity-defining quality about you, is not that you're black or white or Mexican or Asian or Russian or what have you. It is that you are part of this holy ethnos, this holy ethnicity, and it should fill your mind, your self-awareness, your identity with a sense that we belong in a special way to this new nation, this holy nation, which means for us, we are to self-identify, we are to think of ourselves as more Christian than we are black or white or Asian or Hispanic. We are to think of ourselves as more Christian than we are American. So some of you might have noticed, if you were here a couple of years ago when this building became ours, there used to be an American flag displayed over here, and there was an American flag displayed out in the parking lot. I think it was the day we signed the papers, we removed those American flags. Now here's how you should not interpret that action. It was not... Uh, a lack of patriotism that led us to that. I would be as patriotic as just about anyone in this room. It was not because we're embarrassed by American history. I would argue that the greatest force for good in the last 300 years has been 
the United States of America, outside of the church, of course. It was not a repudiation of our national heritage. It was not a, 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 any dishonorment to those who have served in the armed forces or something like that. No, the reason we remove those flags simply is because the church is not the venue for patriotism. We are not gathered here today, brothers and sisters. This is so important that we understand this, especially in our increasingly polarized and hyper-political aware age. We do not gather this morning as a coalition of Americans. We gather this morning as a coalition of Christians. It should be true that if someone came here who wasn't an American, they would feel perfectly at home among the people of God, among the new nation. And you know this, right? If the Lord tarries long after the United States of America is a thing of the past and long and done away with, there will be the church. There will be the chosen race. There will be the holy nation because God is within her. She shall not be moved. Charles Spurgeon said, the whole world is scaffolding. The church is the true building. And in a sense, we could say that we are privileged, brothers and sisters, to be a part of this country, privileged among all the peoples of the world, I think. But what is so much more important than being part of this nation, the United States, is that we have the far higher privilege of being part of the holy nation, the new ethnicity, the new nation that God is creating, and that transcends any sort of patriotism that I might feel as an American. So we're a holy ethnos, a holy nation. We're said to be holy certainly by virtue of our conduct, morally upright behavior, but the idea of holiness I think is a whole lot more than that. We are said to be a holy nation precisely because we belong to the God who is holy. That's what makes us a holy nation. It is a, holy na a holiness we have by association. We are His, and therefore if He's to have a nation at all, it must be a holy nation. Well, as you can see, this is very close to the third idea, the next phrase. We are a people for His own possession. A chosen race, a holy nation, thirdly and finally and briefly a people for His own possession. Just consider this for a moment. The church in this passage is said to be a people for God's own possession. Peter is saying, you in a special way belong to God. He possesses you. He has you. He owns you. But does not God possess all the nations? So Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. You surely know this, but it bears reminding. God owns the Chinese. God owns Russia. God owns the peoples of Africa. They are His possession. He owns secularists in America. He owns the halls of Congress. He owns everyone who works at the White House. You can go up to any person in the world and say to them, you belong to God. You are His, He owns you, and you are answerable to Him as His creature. In a sense, you belong to Him, you are His possession. God owns the world, the whole world is His. But what then should be our reaction when we learn that in a way altogether different, God says we, the church, are a people for His own possession. Yes, the whole earth is mine, God says, but the church, 
She is in a way altogether different. In a way that speaks of the greatest intimacy and love and belonging. She is mine. Indeed, she belongs to me in a way that none of the idolatrous and rebellious peoples of the world belong to me. God says He owns us as His special people. See, it's an owning within the owning. It's a possessing within the possessing. And what distinguishes this ownership, God's ownership of the church, His people, what distinguishes it from God's general ownership of the world has to be His love and His special favor and His mercy. It's a spectacular notion. And it should instill in us a sense of awe and wonder and such a sense of privileged belonging that I belong to God, that we belong to God in a way that speaks of affection and closeness and intimacy. So we've described the spiritual house and the holy priesthood and considered some implications. We've described now the chosen race and the holy priesthood and the people for God's own possession. Let's close with a few implications for us, particularly from these latter three categories. Look with me again, if you would, at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. For what purpose? So now we're getting to function. What does this entail upon us as the chosen race, the holy nation, the people of God? That you may proclaim the excellencies or the praise of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What are we to do as this new nation, as this chosen race? We are to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, what is that proclamation? I don't see any reason to limit it. I think it comes to expression in three distinct ways. And we'll close with these three applications. We proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, first of all, through corporate worship. We proclaim the excellencies of God through our corporate worship, which means we should come Sunday by Sunday with this awareness. I am coming as part of the priesthood, as part of the holy nation, the chosen race, the people for God's own possession, and I'm coming to proclaim things about God. I'm coming to manifest things about God, to declare things that are true about God. This is a call to worship, that when we gather Sunday by Sunday, there is to be proclamation that erupts from the church body. There is to be a proclaiming that God is excellent, that God is good, that God is right, that God is worthy of our praise. This has entailments on our worship. We are all called to proclaim the excellencies of God in the context of gathered worship. Secondly, we proclaim God's excellencies through corporate holiness. Our good works and our holiness and our righteous conduct as the people of God are meant to shine forth and proclaim something to the world. This is precisely why Jesus describes His people as a city on a hill and a lamp that can't be hid under a bushel. We're meant to shine forth to the world, and there's to be a quality of holiness, of life, a quality of godliness and righteousness that emanates from the people of God that they may, as Jesus says, see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, in your holiness, in your manner of life, you are proclaiming that God is excellent. You are proclaiming, as we sang, that His law is pure and right. 
You are proclaiming that the way of the Lord is the right way. Thirdly and finally, how do we proclaim the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? We do it through corporate worship. We do it through corporate holiness. We do it thirdly through corporate evangelism. Through corporate evangelism. We are to be a people who proclaim not only by action, not only to one another in worship, we are to proclaim to a lost and dying world how excellent is our God and what He has done for our poor souls. You're to proclaim the excellencies of Him who, remember, took you when you were in darkness, wandering in the darkest night in rebellion against God, who took you from that place and translated you into His marvelous light. You are to proclaim the goodness and praise and excellency of God who saved you from your sins. And one of the signal ways we do this as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is by verbally, vocally proclaiming to people how great God is and how wonderful the gospel is and how all men must be saved. And so it's worth asking, I want to put this to each one of us individually and to us as a corporate body, how are we doing this kind of proclamation? Are we pursuing context and opportunities in our own individual lives and in our ministries as a local church to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into light? Are we taking opportunities to take aside man or woman at work or in our school setting or among our neighbors, hey, can I just tell you about what God has done for me? There was a time in my life, man, I was caught up in all kinds of darkness, all kinds of stuff. And, and, and the Lord came to me, and I came to understand that I was a sinner, and I came to understand that Jesus came for sinners like me, and I came to appreciate that I could be saved by the grace of God. Are we doing that kind of proclamation? If you want one way to do that, you might consider uh, the email that was sent out earlier this week of what Will Ray has organized. Folks that are going out into the community, direct contact evangelism, they are walking around, see somebody washing their car or walking their dog, strike up a conversation and try to move it in a gospel word direction. I know I just invented a word there. Uh, maybe that opportunity is not for you, but are you looking for other spaces, other opportunities to proclaim, to speak about the greatness and majesty of God and what He has done in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? I cited that quote that's falsely attributed to Francis of Assisi, a few weeks ago, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. You cannot preach the gospel without words. Proclamation has to happen. Is the gospel on our lips? Is proclamation on our lips? I want to encourage you, brother and sister, I don't know how long this pandemic is going to be with us. I hope that we're coming toward the tail end of this pandemic. God alone knows. But there is a sense in which the pandemic has provided us an opportunity to take stock of our lives, take stock of how we're doing as a church. And it is an opportunity from God to do some introspection and self-examination and to reset on some things. Hey, look, when I come back to work, when I'm finally let out of my home office and allowed to come back to the office with other people, I'm going to be a little more vocal about talking about my faith. I'm going to do more of this kind of proclamation. I'm going to look for spots to do this. Hey, when, when we're finally allowed back at school, you Christian young people here, I'm going to let people know I'm a Christian. I'm going to be public about this. I'm going to consider how I can do this work of proclaiming 
How excellent is the God of the gospel and the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, this is our privilege. As the chosen race, the holy nation, we get to represent God to the world. We proclaim him through worship, through lives of holiness, and most of all, through our evangelism. I've gone on far too long. Let's pray together. Father, these things that are said about your church, that we are the spiritual house, the spiritual temple, that we're a priesthood, that we're a new race, a chosen race, that we're a holy nation and a people that in a special way you possess in all affection and love. It's just hard for us to believe these things could ever be true about us. Help us to believe better than so often we feel about ourselves. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to see this local church as you see this local church. And help us to be faithful to the calling you've given to us. May we come here with expectation and with corporate resolution week by week to offer up sacrifices to God that are acceptable in his sight through Jesus Christ. And may we do this work as a church body of proclaiming the praise, the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. May ours be a ministry of proclamation to you, Father, to one another, and to the lost world around us. Impress us with these truths even as we celebrate them in this next song. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.